looking back on 40 years of alternative music. It's the Roots of Alternative podcast with Jack and Dixon for 95X. Welcome back to the Roots of Alternative podcast. We are your guides as we look back on the last 40 years of alternative music. And we've been doing this uh, just about, man, I feel like it's coming up on a year now uh, that we've been looking back on some of the greatest music ever made in the alternative music genre. My name is Jack, joined by Dixon. Hello, my friend. How are you? What's up, dude? How are you? So good. Uh, I had so much fun last time with 1996 and I and like 97 is just building off of the greatness that was 1996. I mean, every year has gotten better, but this is a really, really uh, great year to come. A lot of big songs in 1997 spawned from albums in 1996. So it's a lot of second hits. It's a lot of second singles, third singles. Uh, but there were, I'm going to count them one, two, three, maybe four if we count our alternative 101 homework assignment and we'll decide that or not, but to have three monumental albums come out in one year amongst the traffic in the world of all the, the remaining hits from the albums in 1996, that's a standout year. Yeah. And we're, I'm also surprised to see that we have some, uh, some artists returning to the scene that we talked a lot about in the eighties. So we'll, we'll get to that though. Uh, come on up in a little bit. I uh, just want to remind you, too, that you can catch up on all of our past episodes and see our weekly playlist with some bonus content up on 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative. This episode as well, um, you'll always be able to see our bonus content right up there at 95x.com. So check that out and send us a voicemail with your feedback. We love to hear uh, what you think about the podcast. And I do want to thank, I do want to thank you very much for listening. We've had some Really great feedback uh, from people all over the place, mainly in central New York, because that's where we're based out of. Uh, but I just want to say thank you so much for uh, supporting us and listening to the podcast each and every week uh, and uh, letting us know what you think uh, about what we talk about. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I'll give a quick shout out to Kate, who lives in uh, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I can't pronounce the name of her town. Uh, I'm not even going to try, but uh, she hit me up with a message on Instagram uh, thanking us for the podcast. And she's actually 19 and is treating this as sort of a, uh, a learning experience. So like she listens to the podcast and then whatever inspires her via our conversation, she goes and listens to. Turns out uh, she is now a really big Duran Duran and in excess fans. So I think her and I, I think I've got another uh, young Yoda out there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm not this... a Star Wars guy, but I was trying so hard to drop like a cool modern reference. Uh, that's okay. I, I'm not much, I, I like Star Wars. I'm not much of a fan. So, I, I, you know, you probably did as good as I would do in that case. But uh, Kate, thanks for listening. That's awesome. I, I love to hear that we have people listening that are, are well, I, I, it's so weird to say this, younger than me. <laughs> I'm only right? 30. I just turned 31, by the way. Uh, no need for a happy birthday, though. I'm not really celebrating it. Um, <laughs> but good thing is you still look 17. Oh, uh, well, not sure how that makes me feel, but I appreciate the sentiment. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> hey, man, wait till you're my age and you look that much younger. Trust me. Hey, I'm cool with that. I don't feel 31. I definitely feel more like 21. So, 
but yeah, Kate, thank you so much for listening. And uh, thank you to anyone else who's just recently discovered us. Uh, tell your friends. Tell your friends. We'd love to have them. So uh, why don't we get into it now? And uh, as we always do, uh, as we get into, before we talk about the music, we like to look at what happened in our country, in the world, uh, in our universe, in our surroundings. What the heck went on in the year 1997? Let's take a look at some history from the year 1997 right now. All right. Well, one of the biggest stories of the year, of course, was the tragic death of Princess Diana in Paris uh, in a car crash while being chased by paparazzi. Uh, North Korean Communist Party dear leader Kim Jong-il was promoted to great leader. Uh, the Green Bay Packers are your Super Bowl champions in 1997. They're not in the championship game this year, are they? Uh, no, they're not. I wish they were, though. So Tom Brady wouldn't be going to the Super Bowl again. <laughs> uh, the Detroit Red Wings won the NHL Stanley Cup. Uh, Pete Sampras won Wimbledon. And in addition to that, we kicked off the big quote of the late 90s. Oh, my God. They killed Kenny. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Wow. I forgot about that. Uh, also, another big quote from 1997 that lives on to this day was Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic with, I'm king of the world. Oh, my God. Titanic came out in 97? Yeah. I wasn't allowed to watch that. Because of the boobs? The boobs and other things that went on in a, in a car, in the backseat of a car. But actually, oh, yeah. the funny thing was uh, I went to stay with my grandpa for a weekend and he let me watch it. And I never told my parents. So if you're now they know though, my grandpa get, let me get away with a lot of things. All good, buddy. Now <laughs> here's a very strange fact for you. And I want you to really think about this when I say this. So in 1997, the largest concert in history was played in Moscow by Jean-Michel Jarre. And it was attended by 3,500,000 people. What? 3 million. 500,000 people. That's 3 million people more than Woodstock 99. How have I never heard of this before? Well, here's a, a backup fact that, which is strange to me as well, is it's a tie because in 1994, Rod Stewart played to three and a half million people <laughs> in the Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Rod Stewart, three million people saw Rod Stewart. <laughs> I'm not making fun of him. I just think. That's so random. It's so weird to me. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't understand it myself. Uh, one of my favorite favorite moments of 1997. I remember this distinctly. Uh, was Pepsi had a contest where you could win a life size replica of the Simpsons house. Now there was also like the subcontext that you could take the 75k if you didn't want the house. Uh, the house actually uh, turns out cost a little over $150,000 to build. And the person that won took the cash. Oh, are you kidding me? No, See, it's funny. I, I was always told, I was always told growing up that if you ever win a prize like that, you always take the money. I'm just like, why, why, when it, like the prize is a really cool car and I want the car, why would I take the money? Oh, well right. you get taxed on it, blah, 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 whatever. That, that really sucks. You get taxed on the money too, though. Yeah, you do. 
But now uh, speaking yeah. of 1997 and things that are relevant today, since we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Purell was launched to the general public in 1997. You mean like the hand sanitizer? That yes. Like, was there never hand sanitizer? The, before the name that? brand Purell, which oh. at the time was the first liquid and portable hand sanitizer, was released well, to public. You're telling me hand sanitizer was like a new thing in 1997? Yes. <laughs> That's, wow. Okay, well, I'm glad that they invented it because we definitely uh, used a lot of it in 2020. Absolutely. Now, Titanic, which we just talked about, walked away with 11 Oscars. Yeah. Yeah, great uh, movie. If you're, if you're a wrestling fan, 1997 was also the year of the notorious Montreal Screwjob with the hitman Bret Hart and the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. Uh, if you're a wrestling fan, you're very aware of it. If you're not a wrestling fan, there's actually a great show called Dark Side of the Ring on Vice, and there's an episode devoted to it. It's a fun watch just to see behind the curtain into the pro wrestling industry. I, I, I was not, I was never into wrestling. I mean, do I seem like the wrestling kind of guy? Not, not at really, all, Jack. Not at all. But a lot of my friends were, and I, I do remember vividly, it seemed like the late nineties where like wrestling was like a huge thing at that time. Wasn't it oh, like with the WWF became the WWE right around that yes. time? Yes. Uh, it was yeah, I know a little bit. attitude era. And, and the rock, the rock was big. Yeah. AKA and Dwayne Johnson. He'll probably be uh, wrestling again soon, to be honest. Really? Yeah. I would watch that. Uh, me too. Me too. Uh, there was a lot of celebrity deaths in 1997. Uh, most notably Jimmy Stewart, Legendary actor died at the age of 89. It's a wonderful uh, life. Chris, Chris Farley, SNL, lots of movies that we all know and love, also uh, passed away from a drug overdose. Uh, the notorious B.I.G. was gunned down. And John Denver died in an airplane crash. Oh, I didn't know he died in an airplane crash. That he did. So one more I want to mention that I think goes under the radar. One of my favorite movies of all time from 1997. And I encourage you to watch this with the wife because I think you'll mm -hmm. both enjoy it. Uh, is LA Confidential, which for mm -hmm. the time was sort of like, uh, in, at least in my opinion, uh, Titanic had its historical significance of that. But this sort of is a peek inside that noir of the thirties and forties in America. And it's a great watch. It's really, really well done. And I think it goes under the radar uh, a, a little too much in, in the course of films. And we should probably do a movie, one of these too, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. You know, they're actually, so everybody, all my friends make fun of me cause they, I don't, I'd never, I, I, I'm not a movie buff. I have, there's a lot of movies I have not seen. That's one of them. Um, yeah, I'll add it to the list. I've heard of it before. I just never knew what it was about. I, I think you'll absolutely adore that movie. Hmm. Like okay. it's just, it, it's so charming and so well done. Um, it's just everybody I've ever recommended that movie to loves it. Hmm. Well, you already gave me the you told me to watch that thing you do, and I watched it and loved it. Great Tom Hanks yeah, film. I love Tom Hanks anyway. So uh, anybody in L.A. Confidential, I would know. Uh, almost the entire cast. Uh, this was, in my opinion, one of Russell Crowe's breakout performances. Mm. Uh, you also get a great Kim Basinger performance in this. Uh, and then the rest of the cast is just kind of a who's who with Kevin Spacey and James mm. Cromwell, Danny DeVito, um, Ron Rifkin, 
and uh, you even get a, a little bit of Veronica Lake in there as herself. And if you're a Hollywood buff at all, that'll be important and uh, definitely a plot point in this movie. Uh, yeah, 1997, huge year. I do need to say, go back to the beginning and Princess Diana. Um, I just started recently watching The Crown on Netflix and I honestly didn't think I would like it. But when I learned that it was like, kind of a semi-historical uh, uh, recreation, if you will. Uh, I watched one episode and I was hooked. And I'm on season four right now, Princess Diana. I've only a couple episodes into it, but I do remember that happening. I don't remember a lot of it, but um, definitely a, a, a big moment in time for sure. And The Crown is just such a great show. Have you seen it? Not yet. It is on my, it's in my queue to watch. Yeah. Uh, we have a weird rule in my house where when we when we watch series, we have to take turns and who picks. Oh, and cool. right now, uh, I, it's not my turn. Uh, what are you watching then? In the Dark. Oh, I've heard about that show. Honestly, out of all the stuff my wife's picked over the course of the pandemic, this is the most tolerable and one that I do not hate. And in fact, I'll go as far as to say I'm actually pretty intrigued in looking forward. Uh, we're at the last two episodes of season one right now. Why don't we get into it then? Um, getting into the music from 1997, a lot went on in the year, but the music is why we're here. So without further ado, let's take a look at some of the biggest alternative hits from the year 1997. Now, when we start here, I'm just going to put this out there because we're not going to talk about it a lot today because we're doing a bonus episode based on it. So let's just start with OK Computer by Radiohead because it just happens to be the greatest album in the history of recorded music. Uh, and I know that comes off like one of those pretentious Radiohead fans, but it really was uh, a huge step forward, not only for them, but for um, alternative music because uh, I was talking about this maybe with you um at a point where these guys got to a successful level replicated the success and then just went hey guess what we wrote our own ticket we're going to do whatever we want from now on and they did that and okay computer was that first step into radiohead becoming the entity that they are today they took so many chances with this album and i can't wait to sit with you and jeff york of major player to discuss this album in full. And I also want to give you plenty of time to spend with the album as a whole before we really dive into it, because this is very much an onion of an album where there are layers and nuances and things that really need to be dissected. And if you're wondering, we are going to be doing several bonus episodes uh, coming very soon. We'll keep you posted on that. I know we're going to be doing one on Kurt Cobain uh, in grunge and uh, the, um, uh, the music scene in Seattle. So that will be coming as well, as well as a few more. So we'll keep you posted. And we'll have a special guest for that grunge episode as well. Somebody that had a uh, connection to the local grunge music scene uh, here in Syracuse. So stay tuned because that one's going to be a banger. Uh, yeah. So, okay, computer, that is an album I have not heard. So I, I do need to do my research on Radiohead. I like what I've heard so far. Um, so that should be exciting for me. Absolutely. And the other one that goes without saying, uh, I mentioned it at the close of last week's episode, uh, 1997 brought us the color and the shape by the Foo Fighters. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. To me, this was the Foo Fighters album. While I do have a soft spot for the self-titled, uh, which came out the the year, year and a half previous to this one, because it was Dave Grohl's first foray into you know letting his voice be heard. This one had the two most iconic Foo Fighters songs of all time with Everlong and My Hero. And this was also, to me, sort of the end of the MTV music video era as well, because this was kind of where the Foo Fighters excelled was in the realm of putting fun or really twisted videos to their singles and having a lot of success with that. But it was, it was shortly after this that MTV stopped being music television mm. and became ridiculousness central. Aha. Uh -huh. So, okay. That was, yeah, that does seem to be about this time. It was T TRL was out at this time, wasn't it? 1997. It was in its early stages that sort of peaked as, you know, the, the warp tour scene kids sort of okay. thing also broke along with things like Britney Spears and that era of pop stars and boy bands. And if you're not, if you don't know what TRL is total request live hosted by Carson Daly on MTV, Carson Daly is now you can see him, you know, the, he's on the voice and everything. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll be getting more into that for sure. But I feel like now we're at, we're at the point where we're starting to turn the page again and we're starting to kind of get into a new era. Um, this is getting really interesting here. Absolutely. Uh, where with the first album, Dave played everything except for the one guitar part that we talked about that Greg Dooley from the Afghan Wigs played. On this record, there was a little bit more collaboration, uh, both with uh, William Goldsmith and Nate Mendel, who are the rhythm section or the original rhythm section of the Foo Fighters, but better known before that as the rhythm section for the legends known as Sunny Day Real Estate, uh, mm. a band that we will probably talk about uh, coming up in 1998. Uh, also joining the Foo Fighters, former Germs guitar player who was also Grohl's bandmate in Nirvana, Pat Smear, legendary punk rocker in his own right. And that rounded out uh, the original sort of touring Foo Fighters lineup. And then Taylor Hawkins, uh, who was at one time the drummer of and rumored to be the lover of one Alanis Morissette joined the band. Oh, okay. Didn't we talk about this already? Or was that, that was someone else she was dating? That was Dave Coulier. That was, oh, uh, you okay. ought to know, was written about. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, Cut it out. What? That was his big thing. Uncle Joey from Full House. He would do wow. the cut it out. I didn't watch Full House growing up. I, I'm sorry. I, I admit it. I, I admit it. I was not a Full House kid. Uh, I mean, oh, here's the thing. So I basically grew up an only child. So I'm the youngest of five children. My parents are, well, in the 90s, they were in their, well, would have been late 40s. So, you know, I, I was seven years old in 1997. Parents that are late 40s and they're completely different. They're two generations ahead of me. And all of my siblings are a gener are one generation ahead of me. So there were a lot of things that I just, you know, did not experience, was not exposed to, and it's no one's fault. It just was the way it was. So I didn't grow up a full house. 
Um, I grew up with um, uh, a lot of uh, news uh, that was happening in the world at that time, which we'll be getting into, I'm sure, that next time. But anyway, I digress. Um, no. Nope. Hey, man, we all have our own experiences and there's nothing to apologize mm -hmm. for. Oh, I watched a lot of cartoons, though. I was a Nickelodeon kid through and through. 1997 was a great year of Nickelodeon shows. So, hey man, all <laughs> those late 90s doing. parents use Nickelodeon as a babysitter. I mean, it was my babysitter for a lot of my childhood and even as an adult. There you go. Now, let's go back, if we can, to the Foo Fighters, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. because I'd like to address the situation of uh, William Goldsmith, the drummer, former drummer of Sunny Day Real Estate. Um, so originally the color and shape was recorded, um, at Bear Creek studios in, in like rural Washington and it just didn't gel. There were some issues between Dave and William and William, I believe if the story goes, had some demons, which is code word for drugs and alcohol. Mm. Um, so they moved the whole thing to a new studio and that was Grandmaster Recorders and, um, Dave actually played all the drums on the record. And then when William was made aware of it, he was brought in to play on a couple of things and some parts. And, uh, that was the beginning of the end, uh, for Mr. Goldsmith who ended up leaving the band um, and really fracturing, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest rhythm sections of that time period with Nate Mandel. But I also know, you know, what the, the grips of addiction can do, especially in a situation where the Foo Fighters are a breaking band and this is the sophomore album and we're doing all this touring. It's not a great place for somebody in that mindset to be. So, um, well, I think there might still be some hard feelings all these years later. I think uh, in the end, it was the, the best decision to keep Mr. Goldsmith here on earth with us. Hmm. I didn't know that there was all of that happening. Um, I was just going to say that those songs like Everlong, especially like it really doesn't sound um, like it's from any particular era, I guess. Like I, I feel like that's something that you could hear today. Absolutely. And, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent and no disrespect to Dave Grohl because he's going to be the first dude inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for two different bands. There comes a time in the Foo Fighters catalog where I just stop caring. And, and ultimately, like, I just want to, like, say that I also feel like at that point, Dave Grohl stopped caring. Like, hmm. the early Foo Fighters stuff is special to me because it's, it, it's Dave at his frenetic best. And while his uh, probably overbearing sessions that happened in that first recording, I mean, Dave is hands down one of the best rock drummers of all time. Far and away, probably a top five guy, certainly better than John Bonham and some of the other guys that get, you know, really, really praised. You know, for me, it's Neil Peart, Dave Grohl, um, Ginger Baker, you know, in it, it, there, there became a point where I think Dave disconnected from what made the Foo Fighters special, which was him building the foundation and then him also building the house around it and taking the input from his other band members to, to decorate or to embellish. But, um, 
and again, this isn't a knock on Taylor Hawkins. He's a phenomenal drummer, but man, like I, I think Dave needs a palate cleanser project much like he had when he played drums on songs for the dead by Queens of the stone age. And then came back reinvigorated from that. Somebody needs to ask Dave Grohl to play in a high profile side project that gets some attention to reinvigorate him and <laughs> get him back to the Dave Grohl. I know and love from this era. I do have to admit that new song they dropped recently, not my favorite. Um, Which one? Shame, shame, or waiting for the war? Shame, shame. Shame, shame, I didn't mind. I hated it at first. It grew on me a little bit. The new one, ugh, like waiting on a war is just like, look, Dave, I get it. You're a celebrity and you've got an opinion and that's cool, but like, did you need to write a mediocre song about it and force it down everybody's throat? Mm, just my yeah. opinion yours could vary if you're into it cool but like i what i loved about the foo fighters especially in this early in, in this early area was how dynamic it was the paces changed uh the polyrhythms how you know just absolutely bombastic the foo fighters were and they've sort of turned into this mid-tempo-y same sounding thing and i get it and I, I, you know, I preach all the time that you should allow bands to evolve and grow. But like in this particular instance, I feel like the Foo Fighters have not evolved. They've devolved. Um, mm. And, you know, like and, and I, I heed my own advice. I stick with the stuff I like. I listen well, to the color and shape way more than I listen to anything else from these guys. Well, I was just going to say you said in the last episode how, you know, sometimes bands don't change and they, you know, don't get better as time goes on, but that's okay because you've still got that one album that you loved that was a hit out of the park. You can always go back and listen to. And I guess this is one of those cases for you, my friend. Absolutely. Well, we've got to talk about this next one because I know it is your wife's favorite album. I know it's <laughs> one of your favorite albums. It was the debut and self-titled album from California's third eye blind. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, so yes, um, hands down my wife's all time favorite band. Um, I, honestly, I, I think, um, Stephen Jenkins was probably her first love and still is, uh, which is totally okay. Um, so, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember them from that time. I do admit it wasn't until, man, I think I was, when I was in college, like 10 years ago, I was watching, like it was a like a movie night with my friends and American Pie was on and Semi Charred Life came up uh, in in the movie at at the end. I'm like, oh geez, I remember that song. So I do remember at some point when I was younger hearing that song, and then when I met my wife, it was like, okay, Third Eye Blind. Never really was a huge fan. Never really, uh, I just didn't know anything by them. And uh, my wife has definitely gotten me into Third Eye Blind. Had a chance to see them. In concert several times, we saw them down in Binghamton uh, four years ago in a small venue down there, uh, right up close. One of the best shows I've been to, I think, uh, and I couldn't hear the next day. Um, and I know it's not really set. I feel like Third Eye Blind is one of those bands that um, they definitely have a cult following. The people, the, the fans of Third Eye Blind that are true fans, kind of like Dave Matthews in a way, they will follow them around. They just have a very, very dedicated uh, fan base of true fans that just love them. 
Um, and being able to experience that over the last few years has been kind of cool. And I've actually, having listened to their older stuff, um, their first album, and even their newer stuff, I really, really do love everything that they do. And a lot of the music that Stephen Jenkins has written has been in Encinitas, California, one of his favorite places. And that is a suburb of San Diego. Um, I guess you would consider it a suburb. So when I listen to Third Eye Blind, I think of Southern California, which feels like home to me in a lot of ways. So I get it. I love it. I love them. Great stuff. See, I love the fact that this album went five singles deep over the course of two and a half years. I didn't know it was Obviously, that many. Yeah. Semi-Charmed Life was is the big single. Jumper, of course, mm. another huge hit. Uh, it had that iconic moment in Yes Man with Jim Carrey that I think gave it a second <laughs> life. Uh, Graduate uh, is still a song that I know some colleges use for graduation ceremonies. Wow. Um, and, and one of my favorite songs of theirs. Uh, How's It Going to Be, which mm -hmm. is iconic as well. And Losing a Whole Year, which out of all of their popular songs is by far my favorite. I love the falsetto mm -hmm. in that. Uh, I love uh, Kevin Cadigan. The, uh, the lead guitar player who does like the backup vocals uh, is also like a genius auto heart player. So like mm. to me, that's what really makes that song. Um, and for fans of this album in this era of Third Eye Blind, there's also a documentary short film called Motorcycle Drive-By uh, that I would highly recommend checking out as well. Uh, not only is it like a great insight into the band, it's a really nice little film. Like it's mm -hmm. just really, really good. Like really good. I, I agree. I, we watched it when it, when they debuted it, I, it was over quarantine. I think actually, uh, the yeah, only it was thing back I, in May. Yeah. The only thing I was disappointed about it was that it was really short. I was expecting it to be like an hour long. I think it was only like 20 minutes or something. Um, yeah, just under 25 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it got the point across, um, and a lot of it talked about how Stephen Jenkins wrote that song. Uh, I think it was in a diner uh, in Chelsea, uh, New York City. What I've come to really admire about Stephen Jenkins um, is the complexity uh, that that goes into his thought process in writing songs. Um, and I think that even showed too when you interviewed him uh, during quarantine as well. You and uh, you can watch that interview too up at 95x.com under on demand. Uh, Dixon, you did a really, really great interview with Steven. He really opened up, talked a lot about, um, you know, just his thought process and how he writes his music. Um, he seems like a very complicated guy, uh, but I think that makes for, uh, that, that makes the music that much better. Absolutely. And I'll be honest, man. Like I was dreading that Instagram live <laughs> with him. Uh, Steven is notoriously, um, hot tempered and uh i don't want to say he's bipolar but his personality has a tendency to be that way like he he has a reputation for snapping and uh you know like being offended by innocuous things and i was so nervous to do it uh but i also really wanted to because like i know my interview style is um popular with artists because it's you know Mm -hmm. I have a formula to it. I like to lay a you foundation do. of of compliments and and get onto a same page with an artist and ask questions that I really think should be asked of artists that they never get asked. You know, and it is about their processes and their head spaces and 
specific tones or parts because everybody asks the same five questions. And, you know, like for me, I know when I talk to people, like I don't want to just keep giving the same three things over and over again. Like I can't even imagine what a press day is like for a guy like him. So I always like to like give them free reign to just sort of like riff. Like I'll just make a statement and let them talk. And, and with, with Steven, like we were fast friends and it, it, it was surreal to me in the moment. And even looking back on it, like I was anticipating the worst and got the absolute best. And his performance that day was outstanding as well. Yeah, he definitely was. And, you know, to the, to the people that say that Third Eye Blind is um, one hit wonder type of band that, you know, uh, like a, a, a quote unquote 90s band, uh, I challenge you to go back and uh, listen to some of their newer stuff. Go through the catalog. When I first heard Dopamine, their 2015 record, um, it was a little strange because I, you know, I was used to the 90s stuff, but I right. listened to dopamine through and through partially because my wife always had it on because she's a huge fan. Uh, it really caught on for me and I could hear a lot of that Southern California influence. Um, and you know, it just, it really stuck with me and it led into, uh, their later stuff. We are drugs was another great album that came out in 2016. Uh, but yeah, I really challenge you to check out Third Eye Blind's entire catalog because they really, they have a lot of great stuff to offer. And I mean, mainly that comes from Stephen Jenkins himself, who is just a super talented writer um, and just a, a, a complicated guy that really lets it all out in his music. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'll say too is that, is that Kevin Cadigan does deserve a lot of credit. He's credited on over 85% of the writing of all of Third Eye Blind stuff. The, 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 I almost want to say that these guys are almost like a 90s Lennon and McCarthy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I mean, because I'll be perfectly honest, like the, the stuff that Steven writes versus the stuff that they collaborate on together, I really prefer the collaborative stuff. I, I like when, when Kevin's in there with the harmonies. It, it almost gives it, uh, a little less of a uh, Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska era feel and more of an E street band feel. Hmm. Hmm. And the other, the other thing I want to point out just quickly before we move on is that Arian Salazar, the bass player of third eye blind, one of the most overlooked musicians of the nineties on any instrument. The dude is phenomenal. Do your research on YouTube. Find some of the cool stuff that he's done over the years. Trust me, it'll be a good time. Dixon schools Jack on an album he's never heard before. It's Alternative 101 on the Roots of Alternative podcast. I think we have we have an Alternative 101, an Alt 101 album that you gave me as a homework assignment to listen to. Yeah, this was hands down probably. And, and here's the thing. OK Computer came out this year. The Color and the Shape came out this year. The Third Eye Blind came out this year. They're all albums I love. They're all albums in my collection. They're all albums I listen to. Strangely, the album from 1997 over the course of the last decade that has far more plays from my catalog is the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and Let's Face It. Uh, it's definitely a party record. It's definitely an upbeat album. It's 100% ska to the core, but there's also elements of punk and R&B to it and you know, it, it, to me, it's a listenable album, 
even to this day, because ska is such a standard, you know, there's such a, a base to it. They, I mean, obviously there's a huge difference between the specials and the mighty, mighty boss tones, but ultimately if you were to listen to both of them, you would understand that they're both ska bands. So I did make a note of that in listening through all of these songs in 1997. I want to say that 1997 was the year of ska because there were so many different artists that had that ska sound. And I actually want to ask you, Dixon, where does ska come from? Uh, I mean, the, the British have to kind of be credited for that. I mean, if, if you want to go back to uh, one of our 80s episodes, when we featured the specials. We dove into the, the mm. beginnings of ska. Um, instead of taking up that time here. But this this American version of Ska, specifically the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, uh, their previous release to this was um, a covers album of predominantly metal songs where the horn section took the place of a lot of the lead guitars. And I think that clicked with them. And, you know, this was, this was the Ska band that, like, your metalhead friends liked. And this was the Ska band <laughs> that the punk rock kids liked. And this was the ska band that ska kids geeked over. Um, and the cool thing about the Boss Tones is, is they were that band that would take punk rock bands out on tour with them. You know, mm -hmm. like they, they just, they just had this, this attitude of uh, we're coming to your town. We're bringing some of our friends, their bands are rad. Let's go. And that yeah. was the mighty, mighty Boss Tones in a nutshell. And what other band in history, what other band in history had a band member, that literally just danced or skanked, be using the proper terminology, on stage as a full-fledged member of the band, nobody other than the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. I don't know what you just said, but okay. <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. They just right, so, had a band so, member that just danced? So essentially, Ben Carr uh, wore his ska suit sort of like that zoot suit sort of style and he would just do the ska dance on stage the whole time the band played wait then, is that a thing like us like a ska dance is that like a, a yes a dancing style a ska yes. dance yeah it's sort of what it, is, it, I, it, what is that it's hideous is what it is it's it's like a bunch of kids in plaid like like sort of like square dance hoedown i I've okay never i'll have to look it. that up on youtube and post it on our page <laughs> it's like a cross between square dancing and hardcore kids picking up change okay <laughs> yeah i don't know but regardless so so uh like it was about a year maybe two years into the band's existence they were like eh, we should probably get this guy a microphone so he got a microphone and they realized he could sing. So we started doing like backup vocals and gang vocals and stuff. But uh, I think it's hilarious that this dude literally is a full, like, and when you look it up on Wikipedia and you look at the personnel of the band, he is literally like, it's like Dickie Barrett, lead vocals and artwork, Nate Albert, guitar, backing vocals. Then you get down to Ben Carr and it literally just says boss tone. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, uh, I, so I was going to, while I listened to this album, I was going to, uh, cause I just recently took my PlayStation one, uh, out of storage. Uh, I was going to play Tony Hawk pro skater while listening to this album. The only problem is I don't know where the power cord went for the PS one. So that didn't happen, but nonetheless, I listened to it. Uh, and I've got my kind of review of it. All I'm going to say is this, 
Uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones album, Let's Face It. I liked it. I did. It was fun to listen to. Um, I like I, I like Scott. I do. Um, you know, like No Doubt is a band that that I really like. I always like their sound. Um, Sublime uh, is a band that says uh, they were uh, kind of influenced by uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. So, and I like Sublime too. But I will say, I, I think the only song that really kind of clicked with me, and I hate saying this because it's so obvious, but the hit song, the impression that I get was really the one song that just stuck with me the most. I don't know if that's just because it was their hit and that's what I've always known. Uh, but the rest of the album sound very repetitive to me, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would just say it, it was okay. It was okay. Well, here, here's what I'll explain. And I'm not trying to like, and a lot of people are of the same opinion when it comes to these niche sort of subcategories of music like Scott. The subtleties are what make the album pop for me, where for somebody who isn't well-versed in punk rock or ska to come into it, it is a lot of similar sounding stuff because it's, it's variations on a theme, where with the impression that I get was like very horn heavy. The track preceding it, Royal Oil, was less horn-oriented and more about the groove, which takes it back to like the reggae. And then you've got their full-on, you know, like punk rock, anti-Nazi um, anti theme, numbered days. You know, your days are numbered and your number's coming up. You know, like it, it's basically Dickie being a tough guy, but in the middle of a poppy sort of punk ska song. Um, you know, break so easily, definitely leaning towards their metal end of it. But the, the, the standout for me on this album has always been the rascal King. It was the follow-up single to the impression that I get And to me, like, I genuinely think the rascal King is a better song than the impression mm -hmm. that I get, but I also understand why it wasn't the hit. The, the impression that I get was because it, it wasn't as dynamic. It wasn't as um sort of swaggering as the impression that i get and it doesn't have as many choruses so i get that but th mm -hmm. this is an album that, I, that i'll encourage you uh it, it, put it away you know keep it in your in your itunes library mm -hmm. and then like june-ish oh. take the wife get in the car put the windows down and get on the highway and then throw this on and mm -hmm. i'll tell you you're gonna have a fantastic 46 minutes. Uh, all right. Um, I'll do that. I, I'm definitely, I'm one for good driving songs and I, I could, I can visualize this, you know, driving along the water somewhere. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll do that. It's Generally a great, accepted. it's a great highway album. It's a great highway album. And if we're talking about albums with monster hits and a couple of overlooked singles, we got to talk about New York City's Marcy Playground. Oh, Sex yeah. and Candy dropped in 1997, an iconic late 90s hit that unfortunately overshadowed a couple of songs that I think were equal uh, in the song quality. Uh, both St. Joe on the School Bus and Sherry Frazier uh, were phenomenal singles, in my opinion. Didn't get the traction. Um, and, and it's a, it's a problem that's happening currently for a band called shade. Um, when you have such a monster single and, and to a lesser degree, lovely, the band as well, 
when you have a big song like Sex and Candy that exists on radio for so long, it's tough to get another song started. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, you, you want to let that first one go, but six months hits and you just kind of like, you need another single. You need something to keep the momentum going. You release St. Joe, but people just want to hear Sex and Candy. It's like, oh, that's the new Marcy Playground. That's cool. I like it. It's great, but play Sex and Candy. <clears throat> yeah. I know what and you that's mean. what happened with Shade and Trampoline, and that's a big part of why they've had now two singles fail and hopefully are going to finally connect with this third. Well, you mentioned Lovely the Band. Um, I know we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit here, but I, they've had several singles off their latest album. I like them all. Um, I love everything that Mitchie and the boys have ever done. Uh, it's just not connecting to that mass audience the way Broken did. Hmm. I, that's too bad. Loneliness for love was so good. I mean, like Agreed. That, that could have been, that could have been their next big single and should have been had broken, not still been a huge force uh, at alternative. And they released loneliness for love as broken was moving over to CHR, which mm. then took up even more lane space, giving broken a second life at alternative and, and just putting mm. loneliness for love in the dirt. We're getting technical here with uh, talking about formats and crossing things over, but needless to say, you're, you're getting a little hint into what it's like working in radio. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, um, it's, it's good. Um, and then the other one that I think deserves uh, mentioning because it, it's still a staple at alternative radio and across playlists is Song 2 by the Legends wow. out of the UK known as Blur. This was their self-titled album. A lot of you know it is the Woo Hoo song. It's called Song 2. Um, it was nominated for Best Group Video, Best Alternative Video. It won NME. It won at BBC Radio 1. It won the 1998 Brit Awards. It was awarded Best British Single. Uh, and it stands the test of time. Uh, again, much like the Foo Fighters, I don't think this one sounds like the 90s. I think this one sounds just as current today, minus the production value. So I've got most of my big ones out of the way. What were some of the things that you dug about 1997? Well, I got to talk about The Verve and Bittersweet Symphony. Um, that's one of those, you know, I've always kind of put The Verve in the same category as Oasis. I don't know why. D does that make sense? It does. I mean, they were both huge bands out of the UK. Uh, Oasis just kind of usurped them as the band from the UK in the United States. Yeah. I definitely a classic there. I love that one. Um, and there was a song on this list that I hadn't heard before from Oasis. I mentioned last episode, I need to dive into their catalog and really get a feel for everything because I've had a little bit of taste of several different things from both of these bands. And I need to, I need to see more, but Oasis had don't go away as a big song in 1997. That was one that I loved. We talked about this last time. Wallflowers had one headlight it was very popular in 1997, so I'm going to mention it again. One of my favorite songs, uh, of course. And the Verve Pipe with the song The Freshman. Um, I don't know much about them. Did they have other big songs? Because I, I was Not like, really, that. no. They're they were one definitely hit a one-hit wonder. A cool band, bad. don't get me wrong. And that single, uh, I mean, it does sound dated in, in today's landscape, but still a, a classic track for sure. Mm -hmm. definitely uh and, and a quick note about a bittersweet symphony um the rolling stones actually made predominantly more money from the success of that song because of the sample used from the last time 
uh, than the Verve made on that song. Wait, what are you talking about? So the opening strings of Bittersweet Symphony are sampled from uh, a Rolling Stones song oh. called The Last Time. And it went unaccounted for until the song became a huge single. And then, of course, you know, litigation began. And- That's right. There was a documentary. Actually, I'm thinking back to college. When I was in college, uh, taking some communications courses, we had a whole, like, chapter where we talked about that case and how how they sampled that song and used it. And I forget exactly what did did the Verve lose out on that? Like the Verve were, lost, yeah. They, they, they straight up lost. And they and so even to this day, do they have to pay royalties to Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. That's that's really something. Yeah. And it you know it's interesting too because now now that we're we're in the late 90s the technology has changed and it's i mean i i feel like djs are now starting to pop up and they're using they're using technology they're using software they're using computers to manipulate songs um and sampling is now becoming a thing and i we will start to see more of this as we move forward obviously yeah. till now and so there's there's a, still a lot of uncharted territory at this time in 1997 with that well it's been ha- it, at this point it had been happening for years in the world of hip-hop dating back to the late 80s um but this was the first time something so egregious had happened without accreditation and no offense to the verb because i'm a big richard ashcroft fan he's had uh you know his solo career and then he had uh, another band called love spit love that was phenomenal um but in this case, man, like I got to side with the stones. You can't take somebody else's thing and, and just, it would be like you taking the Mona Lisa and painting a mustache on her and being like, <laughs> yo, this is my new painting. That's kind of what this was. Now, had they gone the legal route originally and admitted to using it and then paid rights for it, those right. dudes would be sitting in the laps of luxury instead of adding to the coffers of Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Yeah. Now, we talked about how 1997 was the year of ska. It was also the year that we started to see electronic slash rave or Mm. industrial music uh, move into the world of alternative. And this was a corner of the world that I never really got into. It wasn't my thing, but it's worth mentioning because there were big hits uh, from Moby, Daft Punk, White Town, and the big two in 97 were the Prodigy and Chemical Brothers uh, with Firestarter and Block Rock and Beats. And I dig it, man. I like it a lot more now than I did at the time. Um, but again, it was it was definitely a, a big powerhouse movement in the late 90s. Uh, yeah, I love Daft Punk. Uh, Around the World was the big hit in 97. To be honest, I don't even remember how I heard their music because I don't remember them being on the radio at this time. Were they MTV, MTV and TV? Okay. Uh, some of their music at this time was used. Um, I don't want to call it anime, but in some animated things that were starting to make the rounds of the early internet. And I just wanted to mention two, uh, two songs. Uh, one that an artist that we saw a few years ago, uh, in relation to our episodes here, Sarah McLaughlin had a song called Sweet Surrender. And I had completely forgotten about that song. I do remember hearing that song. I think when I was like seven years old, when it first came out, it's been a very long time since I heard that. 
Um, and then we also saw a new song from a band we haven't talked about in a while. Depeche Mode had the song It's No Good in 1997. Not a huge hit, but still a, a worthy effort from the Depeche Mode crew. Uh, it was great to see them evolve through uh, the, the changing times of the 90s and stay relatively relevant. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think we need to make uh, a little mention of, because it, it's going to be um, sort of a catalyst between these guys, the Boston's, and a few other things that were happening around this time, that really led the charge on pop punk was we saw our first glimpse of Blink-182 mm. with the single Damn It off their sophomore album, Dude Ranch. I've never been a huge Blink-182 fan, if we're being completely honest. And, you know, it's one of those things where, like, now in the current day, I'm torn because uh, the, the, my, one, of the, one of my favorite musicians of all time uh, from Alkaline Trio, Matt Skiba, is a member of Blink-182. Uh, and I love everything that Matt's done, and I do enjoy the things that he's collaborated with Blink on more than the older Blink stuff. But this was a, this was a sort of a monumental thing for what was to come. Uh, if you're a fan of things like uh, My Chemical Romance or The Used, Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, Newfound Glory, Dashboard Confessional, this was the record that got all of that stuff to radio, in my opinion. We're starting to turn the corner as we head Absolutely. into the last half of the decade that was the 90s. And I'm very, very excited because there's a lot of great stuff coming our way. But we still got a couple more years to get through uh, left here in the 90s. Any other big songs from 1997 that we should mention? There are a few that I would I would like to to sort of give like a runner's up prize to. Like okay. great songs just didn't feel the need to expound upon them. Uh, but Fiona Apple with Criminal, we've talked about Fiona in the past. Uh, Sublime came back with another single called Doing Time that did really, really well. Uh, the weird frenetic energy of Squirrel Nut Zippers hit the airwaves <laughs> with a track called Hell. Uh, a song in a band that I think stands up to this day, uh, Sneaker Pimps and a song called Six Underground. Go and check that out if you haven't. Uh, definitely a very cool, vibey track that if I told you was released last year, you'd have a hard time trying to dispute that. Um, there were also a couple of things that snuck in that were a little bit more pop-leaning, but got their start much like Tones and I did in 2020 at Alternative. Uh, the first of which is Chumbawamba <laughs> and Tub Thumper. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the... I get knocked down, but I get up, it again. up again. It's that song. Uh, and then the <laughs> other one, and I, I don't know why, but I have a soft spot for it is OMC and How Bizarre. I thought you were going to say Fly by Sugar Ray because that was another one from 97. No, they're, they're at the very tail end of my list. Um, the Cardigans and Love Fool, also something that I would point people towards. Jamiroquai had a cool song and video with virtual insanity. You mentioned, no doubt they had uh, a big hit with Sunday morning and uh, we will end with uh, sugar Ray and fly. <laughs> now here's the thing. Uh, I never thought of them as alternative. So much like the offspring or other bands that weren't heavy enough for what was happening at rock radio and the changing climate there, a lot of bands that had an element of whether it was punk or funk or, 
uh, in some instances, comedy, which I think happened with the offspring with a few singles over the years, they got lumped into alternative and, you know, I don't know, like at the time I thought it was kind of cool. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was different, but then, you know, you talk about things that came along that were inspired by Sugar Ray and they were all awful, whether it was, you know, and the other thing too, and the other song from this year that we should probably mention is Smash Mouth and Walking on the Sun. There was a, a, a weird bit of like, and like Len would steal my sunshine. There were some of these like California-esque bands that I think were a post Red Hot Chili Peppers, but pre Incubus sort of mm -hmm. California vibe. Um, and, you know, like I, I do have a soft spot for like Mean Machine and some of the earlier stuff from Sugar Ray. Looking back now, this is a little cringy. Mark McGrath has proven to be a bit of a cringy dude. Um, <laughs> but the one thing I'll say is there was a, a short lived show called Rock and Roll Jeopardy on VH1, hmm. and Mark McGrath kicked everyone's ass so bad it was embarrassing <laughs> i'll have to check that out well the only thing i would say is uh i definitely remember all right if anybody is about my age and remembers the roller skating nights where you know friday nights whatever you get your friends together and it was like a school sponsored roller skating night at the local roller skating rink one of the songs it was always requested was tub thumping by Chumbawamba. In addition to a the, probably the clean version though, right? I have no idea. Who knows? I honestly the the roller skating rink by my house was the most disgusting, run down, like horrible place. That there were probably some really sketchy things going on in there after hours. That place is no longer open. I don't even know if it's still standing. I haven't been over there in years, but it was such a fun place to go to. And these songs, whenever I hear these songs and that one in particular, brings me right back to those moments. So that time period, roller skating rinks were on the way out. Yeah. So they weren't necessarily being taken care of. But yeah, I have some very <laughs> fond memories in that era too. I had a birthday party rinks. at I had a I had a birthday party at that place once. So I'm I'm, I'm gonna ask a weird question here. Yeah. And I think I already know the answer. But when you are referring to skating and going to the roller rink, are we mm. talking inline skates or quads? Both. Ooh. So, okay. That's not the answer I was expecting. So, all right. So, if you were cool, you had the inline skates. If you didn't have your own skates and your only option was to rent a pair from the facility, all they had were the quads. I wore Look the quads. Look what's making a comeback in 2021. Quads. They are. I know my wife wants a pair. I don't get it. But she really wants it. She sent me a link. And sooner or later, I'll get them for them. Bright yellow ones. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Fun I think that, that pretty much wraps up 1997. Again, we're going to revisit OK Computer uh, within the next month or so as Jack and I sit down with a Syracuse musician from a band called Major Player. Uh, his name is Jeff York, and he probably knows even more about that album than I do. And being a musician that deals uh, with a lot of the sound and equipment that were used to record that album, he will be a useful uh, individual to sit and chat with as we break down, in my opinion, the greatest album of all time. 
I'm super excited. Any relation to the uh, Tom York? No. <laughs> no. I was going to say that'd be kind of cool if it was. Either way, that'll be a lot of fun. What do we got coming up in 1998? Well, in 1998, we got one of Jack's favorite bands with a couple new tunes. We're talking about Buffalo, New York's Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, we'll also dive into Semi-Sonic and their legendary track, Closing Time. Uh, the Bare Naked Ladies broke through to the mainstream outside of the Northeast in Canada with their single One Week. Uh, the New Radicals, who were recently mm -hmm. in the news for reuniting for the inauguration, had their big hit, You Get What You Give, in 1998. Uh, Cake follows up their legendary Fashion Nugget album, and we'll talk about Fat Boy Slim and the resurgence of the Beastie Boys. Can't wait to check it out. 1998 coming next time. What a fun time. Be sure to check out our show page for some bonus content, 95x.com slash roots of alternative. And while you're there, you can check out all of our past episodes as well. And uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Dixon, always a pleasure, my friend. We'll talk to you next time. Awesome, dude. We'll talk to you soon. All right. And thank you for listening. My name is Jack. Have a wonderful rest of your day whenever you're listening. And thanks for listening to the Roots of Alternative podcast for 95X.